Welcome to More Peace at Slow Speeds podcast. I hope your day is going amazing. I hope it's the best day ever. Today I'll be talking about a little about my history, a little bit about my past. The whole point and the intent behind this podcast is to help people get through their struggles, get through their pain and their suffering. Because I know when I was going through the thick of it, I would have loved to have had a podcast or some kind of mentor or something to give me a little hope, to give me a little peace of mind that I, that I am on the right path, that I am doing the right thing. A lot of times when you're doing the right thing and you're on the right path, you don't know that at the time because the people in your environment are telling you not to do that thing because it challenges them and their beliefs. You know, a lot of times when you go against the grain and you do something different, that's going to be the case. People are going to tell you that you can't do it, that it's not possible. But I'm here to tell you that change is possible. If I could do it, anybody can. And that's really the message I want to get across. I was born in 1988, so I'm 35 right now. Grew up in Chicago. It was a great childhood, don't get me wrong. It was just a different era than it is today. We played outside, we explored, we played in the forest. We did everything outside, and a lot of times that was sports, a lot of times that was baseball, basketball, football with the friends. And we had uh, got into drugs pretty early on. At about 13 years old, we started smoking weed. And the thing is, when your brain is developing, you are incapable of processing long-term danger, long-term impacts of choices you make in that moment. You're just incapable of that. And of course, you're not going to have the highest self-esteem when you're stoned all the time. The household I grew up in was, it was one of those households that everything was fine. And emotions and feelings and none of that would ever be discussed, ever. You kind of had to wear that mask that everything was always okay because image was more important than authenticity. Our parents did the best they could with the information they had, you know? I was the guy who's always getting in trouble with his friends in school for the dumbest shit. I started boozing a little bit and then mushrooms, which at that age, like 14, 15, you're definitely not ready for a mushroom trip because you don't understand intentions. Your intention at the time when you're that young is to get as fucked up as possible. And for the ones who have ever done mushrooms, you do not take mushrooms to get as fucked up as possible. And if you are doing that, you're not, you're not making the best decisions. And you should not be trusted if you're making that decision because a mushroom trip is such a big thing. It should not be taken lightly. It changes your perspective. And when you take mushrooms in a social setting like a party, man, that's, that is fucking horrific. That's a horrible trip. Every trip would be a bad trip because I would take them in social settings. It would end up fucking being scary, you know? Real fucking scary started doing DXM. For the ones who don't know, DXM is the active ingredient in cough medicine. I would chug these bottles of, of Delsum. Out of all the drugs I've ever done in my life, DXM probably intoxicated me the most. Like it was a, we took it at such high dosages, it would dissociate you from your body. I'm just being real. That was a powerful, powerful substance. We also started doing cocaine, like anything we could get our hands on, we started doing, no matter what it was. Salvia, 
acid, whatever it was. And this was still high school. Eventually got accepted to the University of South Dakota. The recruiter told me it was only because of him that he had to jump through a bunch of hoops to even have me considered for that university. When I go out to college, I, had, I got a fake ID earlier that summer, so I was immediately inundated with the wrong crowd at college. Just immediately, when you have a fake ID and you're 18 years old, you're not going to attract people with the growth mindset. You're not going to attract positive influences. You're not going to attract people you need to be around. You're going to attract people who are trying to escape reality. You're going to attract negativity. You're going to attract other people that are getting fucked up. Simple as that. And I'll speed through a lot of the college years because it was more the same as it was in high school. Just getting fucked up, partying all the time. Grades are, were suffering. Switched my major six or seven times. And I wound up majoring in addiction counseling. One winter break, I went back to Chicago to visit uh, family, you know, over Christmas. And I think it was like junior year. There's like four or five of us. And uh, we're at uh, my buddy's house and they pull out a, a powder. They called it hydromorphone or something like that. In my head, that meant like oxy or something like a, or Vicodin. Like I didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. They go around and do lines of this, this stuff. And so I, I go to do a line. It was a warm blanket on a cold winter's night made me comfortable in my own skin as soon as I do that line like a few minutes after I was told by by these guys that it was it wasn't hydromorphone whatever the fuck that is it was heroin I couldn't believe I had done heroin but at the same time I couldn't believe how amazing it felt I was also pissing my buddies you know like how could you dupe me into doing this you know and I would start receiving heroin in the mail at college I started receiving heroin whenever I went back home. It was the only thing I thought about for quite some time. I was always trying to talk with my friends who were mailing it to me from Chicago. I was always trying to get them to ship more, and, and I was penny-pinching because at the time I, I was working for the four-wheeling company Polaris for a few years, and they got me by so I could manage that. And you're in small town South Dakota, so it's not like you have heroin dealers anywhere. It just did not exist. So it wasn't an option to go find the local heroin dealer like it is in Chicago, Chicago, believe it or not. There are some parts of Chicago where you can walk down the street and find heroin easier than you can find food. Not joking whatsoever, not exaggerating. There are some neighborhoods, some places in Chicago where it's just so incredibly easy to find the drug you're looking for. And not only that, you get approached and people come up to you because you're just simply walking around. You just look like you're fiending and you, you look like you are in withdrawals and you're, you are a money sign to a lot, of, a lot of folks, you know? And that's just the reality of the situation. It didn't take long for me to get ripped off by my friends, my childhood friends who were mailing me the drugs inside birthday cards or candles or whatever it was. It went on for a while, but it didn't take too long for them to start ripping me off and for me to just 
realize like this is just not an endeavor worth trying anymore because I got ripped off too many times money down the down the toilet and it gives you false hope like you think you're getting this package in the mail your friends are telling you that they shipped it they shipped it they shipped it you're wait you're going to check the mailbox every day sometimes many times a day end up realizing like hey I got ripped off and these guys are going to continue to lie because they're so deep into the drug they're addicted and they will tell me whatever lie that they need to to continue to get money so I understood that so my options for obtaining heroin like that were non-existent anymore and this was like senior year by this time I got in my head uh, that I wanted to just stop doing heroin as it was because I want I really wanted to become a drug counselor but in my head I was thinking I could still do other drugs but as long as I'm not doing heroin, I'm good, I'm clean. As long as I'm not doing heroin, I'm clean, I'm good. And that was my justification. That was my line of thinking. And yes, I know it was delusional. I know it was shit way of thinking. However, that was my mindset at the time. The only classes that I would care about were the drug counseling classes because some of the teachers were actually true and good real teachers with real world experience that was the only time in college where I had teachers or professors who were experienced in their field of study because a lot of times you have these chemistry teachers or what, mathematics whatever the, the industry is and they're teaching it but they have no real world experience in that subject matter they only stayed in academics their whole life so it was nice and it was a relief to have teachers who lived, who worked in the profession and taught what they know. Like it was really nice to see. Beneficial for, for a lot of people. So I, I was able to find an internship in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I was able to graduate on time because of that. The internship was interesting. It showed me what the real world was like. Because academics, let's be real, like, education, they set you up for a false reality that does not exist. They set you up for something that is just not there. So you graduate, and then you see how the real world works, and you're like, oh, shit, this is completely different and might even be opposite of what we were taught. And these are things, if you're young now, you'll, you will understand later on. And because this treatment center had very few male counselors, it didn't take them too long to offer me a full-time position at that treatment center as a substance abuse counselor or drug counselor. I leaned into the role. I was pretty good at what I did and I was confident I was able to relate to each and every one of my clients. And some of them still write me messages to this day about how I helped them get through their struggle and maintain sobriety. The universe has a way of making you learn if you are incongruent with the things you're teaching. When you're a drug counselor and you're smoking weed or drinking or doing any of those things and then you're preaching to your clients how sober you are or whatever the case or you're teaching the importance of sobriety, you're, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to face that and you're going to have to deal with it 
because you're incongruent. So it's only a matter of time before self-sabotage or something kicks in, right? About a year into the role, I was in my townhome with my girlfriend at the time, and I received a call from one of my childhood uh, friends who was, you know, close to me my whole life. And he informs me that our best friend, Mike, had OD'd and passed away. That shook me like a, shook me to my core because I knew I should have been there and I knew I could have helped him. But he had been living in a halfway house. He was, do, he was on the straight and arrow. I'm not sure what led him to relapse, but he had a relapse and he shot up in a McDonald's bathroom and died. It sucks because we grew up together since three years old. His parents babysat me. I mean, I, I was raised by basically his parents. There's not a day that goes by currently that I don't think about Mike. There's not a single day that goes by. And this might stem from I wasn't able to make it to his funeral services because at the time, one of my clients had a court date to see if he was able to be released from jail or not. And I could not miss it. I could not get out of it. There was just no way I could miss that court date. Because as a counselor, there's a lot of times when you have to testify for your clients and speak in court and speak with the judge and and just answer questions. It sucked. The whole situation was shitty. A few weeks after that, I get a call from my dad telling me that my grandma, his mom, passed away. And that was my last remaining grandparent. I was able to make it back to those funeral services. And this would fall. I would get back on a Friday. I would get back to Chicago on a Friday and have to be back to Sioux Falls on a Sunday. So a very quick turnaround. And this was a weekend that I would never forget. Because when I get to Chicago, I had not even thought about it. It was just an automatic response. I went straight to the heroin dealer. Got high as a kite. The thing about it is you don't know what you don't know. And that'll be a theme throughout every episode of this podcast, right? But when this, this particular weekend, I would go to my grandmother's funeral that, on that Saturday. And then after that, we went to a Cubs game. I would do bags of heroin in the stall at, in the bathroom or whatever, and that was fine. And Danny, I would have a beer. It was like I never stopped using heroin, even though I had some clean time. It was like I just picked up where I left off. And then that evening, I get back from all that. One of my buddies dropped off a few pills of Valium, Valium pills. And I did not have much experience with those at the time. I didn't. Right before I went to bed, I took a couple Valium. And for the ones of you that don't know, Valium is a benzodiazepine. It makes you super lethargic, makes you very relaxed, makes you not think about much, but it suppresses a lot of your signals that the brain sends to the body, right? So when I fell asleep that night, I passed out in a way where I was on my back, horizontal on my back, with my knees bent, 
so that my knees were pointing up to the ceiling. So on your back with your knees bent, passed out for so long in that position. It was like 17 hours. I wake up on that Sunday. I'm running so late to, to start driving the 10 hours back to Sioux Falls. I'm running so late. I w- when I woke up, I couldn't walk. I was unable to function. It's, words can't even describe the amount of pain I was in. I was pissing out a black powdery substance. I had no idea what was going on. I couldn't even think straight. Like I was in so much pain. A few hours went by. My dad called my brother and got him over to the house. And it was this whole thing of like, what's wrong with Tommy? What's wrong with him? What's wrong with this guy? And even in that moment, I still would not come clean about using heroin. I was still lied about. I still just didn't bring it up. I just told everybody, oh, I just had some beers yesterday. I just had some beers. It doesn't take people long to realize that something's fucked up with this guy. Like he's, he's fucking sweating balls. He's in a lot of pain. All I was doing was moaning. I couldn't, I needed my brother to help me get to the bathroom because I couldn't walk. And so they called the ambulance. They called 911, I think, and ambulance came to my house. The paramedics come up to my bedroom, get my ass on a stretcher, carry me downstairs. It's this whole thing. They're doing, running all these tests on me. And nobody could figure out what the hell is wrong with me. We get to the hospital. A bunch of doctors are surrounding the bed. And they asked me, like, have you used any drugs? What, what are you on right now? What, what, what did you put in your body yesterday? And I still didn't say anything. I still just said, oh, just some beers. Just some beers. It's just so ridiculous because I knew they were going to test my blood and find everything, you know? Blood test comes back with benzos and opiates. I still deny. I still denied everything, you know? Just like a stupid, dumbass I was at the time. I'm just in so much pain still in, this, in the hospital. I got my brother, my dad in the hospital, in this emergency room. Doctors coming in and out, running all these tests. They can't figure out what the hell is wrong with me. They find out at, after the blood test, my kidneys are in failure. Kidney failure. Turns out I had passed out in a way that the, all the blood in my body just sunk to that, just sat in that area right in the kidney area because my knees were bent and the blood just was unable to pump up my leg or anything so just sat in my kidneys and that caused a situation known as rhabdomyolysis for the ones that of you that don't know this is also known as compartment syndrome they also tell my family and myself that my heart is extremely swollen it it got up to about double the size it was supposed to be. The doc informed my dad that it would be a wise idea to start making funeral arrangements because I most likely would not survive the night. I heard this and I was almost relieved. I was almost relieved because I knew how fucked up my body was. I knew how messed up my body was. I knew that the road to getting better would be such a Herculean effort, I didn't think I had any of that in me. I wanted to die in that moment. No bullshit. I wanted to die because 
I knew how fucked up my mind was, how fucked up mentally I was. I wanted the pain and suffering to be over, not for me, but for my family. I really just wanted it to be over. At this time, when you're in the ER like that, they just need you to just be re relaxed. And they, so they get you on a IV drip. They, they're pumping fluids through you. They're pumping Dilaudid through you. They're pumping painkillers, whatever the fuck, to just keep you not in the way. They don't care if you're a junkie. They, don't, they just want you to just shut the fuck up and relax, right? But you're just, you're just in another, you're not yourself, like you're just, you're all fucked up, like you're just in so much pain, you're all fucked up, your family's there, like the whole situation, it's a lot to process. A few hours go by and they're still running all these tests on me because there's all sorts of other shit that's fucked up in my body, like glutes, part of my glute was being deteriorated on my right side, part of my quad was being deteriorated because of this rhabdomyolysis it was just a whole situation my heart just the whole thing was just so fucked up they gave me more Dilaudid and Dilaudid is a high powered opiate and that was the, f the first time that I had felt being injected with any substance that was nuts because I was so fucked up and then that was the only thing that, to help me not think about it so I felt that, and then I pass out, I fall asleep, and right before I fell asleep, I felt that rush of being injected. But the only thing running through my head was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for, for this, I'm sorry. And I don't even know who I was saying it to, but I couldn't stop saying I'm sorry. And just having all this regret that I wasted all my potential because I decided to try and escape reality or just get fucked up on drugs, you know? I was just so mad at myself. In that moment, you don't you don't know if you're gonna wake up. The doctors don't know if you're gonna wake up. Like, you would do anything in that moment to live a little longer. I end up falling asleep. I end up waking up, and I wish I could tell you that things just fell into place and everything was just amazing after that. But that's just not the truth. I woke up and I was furious. I was pissed because I woke up. I. I wanted it to be over because I didn't want to put my family through any more pain and suffering because my mind was so rotten. The thing was, I had to call my boss at the treatment center to explain to her what had happened and what the fuck was I going to say to her? That I relapsed on heroin, took some Valium and overdosed? What are you, to another, like what? What? I ended up not having to make the call because my dad had already called and told her that I was just severely dehydrated that led to kidney failure. And I was like, okay, I didn't even think about it because I was still all just fucked up. They had put a catheter in me. I was, I was just a wreck. And then a bunch of tests got back later that morning. The results were I would be, if I survived this, whole situation I'd be most likely on dialysis kidney or dialysis the rest of my life I might have to get my right leg amputated because of all the muscle damage no way I'd be able to run again no way I'd be able to jump again no way I'd be able to play sports again 
I'd be lucky, lucky if I was able to close a fist again. All these basic motor functions, I would be lucky to be able to do ever again. And the, the amputation part was very scary to me because I come from a sports background. That was my only outlet that wasn't drugs with sports throughout my life. So this fucked up my mind so badly because if you tell somebody they can't do what they love to do, their mind's just going to be in the gutter, right? So that's just how it was. After a few days, you, you start to pick up on how the hospital works and on the food. And I was so fucked up, I had to get my ass wiped by fucking beautiful nurses and shit. It was, it was so fucking rough in every possible way. And you're just laying there like a blob. Your body's being filled with IV fluid. You're just swollen. Your whole body's swollen. You're, you see how big your heart is on these... Uh, x-ray machine you see how how fucked up your body is you can't function and then your mom comes in and she doesn't even ask like how you're how you're doing she doesn't even ask what the prognosis is she doesn't ask any of that the first thing she asked that did anybody see the ambulance pull into the driveway at the house what did anybody see the ambulance pull into the driveway at the house I learned everything I had to learn about my mom in that moment. Say no more, mom. Say no more. You said everything, everything within a single statement. A single statement spoke so many more words than, than ever. Like, it was so revealing. Like, I just burst into tears in that fucking moment. There's nothing else to be done. There's nothing else to be done. Like, you don't care what the prognosis... Like, you're, co you're coming to visit your son, your youngest, in the hospital. Any other question, any other question ever could have been presented in that moment, and I wouldn't have cared. But that was the only question that was like, are you, you worry about your, your image, your reputation, or, or your perceived image or perceived reputation more than the health of, of your youngest? Like... Come on, man. Our relationship has never been the same. It's safe to say. Every few hours, you have nurses coming in to give you meds, to check your vitals, to tell you what the doctors are saying, because you have a team of doctors working on you, and you're, you're not sure what to think about all of it, because it's so much to... It's overwhelming. You can't think correctly, because you're worried about getting your leg amputated, you're... You're worried about you're worried about all these things, and the only thing you could do is 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 just stare off into some shitty ass TV and just wish you were fucking somewhere else, you know. And a few family members came in and would visit. My clients from the treatment center would actually send me a card and flowers, and it meant so much to me at the time. I could do nothing but just like cry of joy that. But in the back of my mind, I knew how fucked up it was that their counselor went back to his hometown, relapsed, overdosed, and then lied to his boss about it. Like that did not, did not sit well with me whatsoever. And so people come visit me. And after about one week of this, I began physical therapy 
and it starts off super slow because they want to test like what can this guy do what can he not do and those first few days I couldn't even close a fist like my hand on a ball I couldn't even do that when they made the hospital bed like sit upright it was so painful I just couldn't I was unable to sit upright but after a few days of physical therapy I really just kept pushing I kept needing to to do more every time so it started out with being able to sit upright it started out with being able to close that fist it started out with being able to almost almost get up on your own then they introduced the walker and this is spread out through days and days and days and it gives you a little bit of hope that maybe just maybe you can get out of this maybe you can that's all I needed because every day after that I would do more and more before you know it I was learning how to walk again with a walker do it in the hospital where it was like just one step at a time like just focus on that one step at a time it's crazy the things we take for granted in regular life because in that moment when you can't walk you can't even take a step you would do anything to take a step this physical therapy, this hospital stay, I was in the hospital for like 30 days in the ICU. 30 days. They filled me up with so much IV fluid, you could push down on my skin and see the skin ripple as if you were throwing a ball in a pond and watching the splash ripple out. It was, it was wild. Uh, so when I was released from the hospital, I knew, deep down, I knew that I was still addicted to opiates. Because the opiates hadn't stopped. If anything, they got far worse because I went from snorting heroin to injecting opiates. I went into the hospital with an associate's degree in heroin, came out with a master's degree in injecting drugs. You know, that's, that's exactly what happened. I knew how fucked up I was mentally. I knew how fucked up I was physically. And when I was re released, I was released in a wheelchair. I was still all sorts of messed up. I knew somehow, some way, I was going to have to make it back to my job. And I, j I, I mean, think about this scenario, right? Like, my clients are waiting for me. My coworkers are waiting for me. My girlfriend is waiting for me in our townhome. Like, all these different things. Like, you got to get back to life. But in my head... I needed to get back to the heroin dealer. I needed to shoot up heroin. I needed to do all these things. And it's just so delusional. But that's precisely what I did. The very first day I got out of the hospital, the very first day I saw the heroin dealer again. And I, I didn't stop there. It just kept going. And even though I was unable to walk and in a wheelchair, I still found a way. And then after that, I still went to physical therapy. I still did those things so I so I was able to walk again and it starts slow like you they give you a cane they give you a walker I mean you can't you can't run you can't jog you're walking so slow and you're still in so much pain like my hip was still so messed up my right leg my right hip so it was about two two months after the overdose the actual physical overdose I'm in Sioux Falls again, and I'm back to counseling my clients about sobriety and 
maintaining sobriety while I'm high as a kite on morphine and Dilaudid and all the all these pills that I got from the hospital stay or heroin that I got from the drug dealer or whatever. I was just I was a wreck. I was an absolute wreck. And when this when you're so far out of alignment like this, nothing nothing is going to go your way. Nothing positive is going to happen as a result from your negative behavior. It didn't take too long for me to start being lenient and start throwing out these little phrases and questions while counseling my clients, like letting them get by with a failed UA for marijuana or something, you know? Like I would, I'd let them let one of them pass for a UA for weed one time. And then that led to another guy doing the same thing. And I did it for him. And before you know it, it's starting to get out of control. But in your head, you think you have control. I started to wind down on my supply of opiates after a few weeks. And this was problematic because I didn't want to go through withdrawals and have to take off work again because I knew that wasn't a possibility. I went on to ask one of my clients if he knew where to get opiates. And damn, that was not a good idea. That was not a good idea. Because what stemmed after that was he did find me opiates. But that led to him coming into my office and us shooting up together in my office. So you got a drug counselor, one of his clients, in his office together, shooting up drugs while the rest of the group session is watching a movie. Yeah, so I'll let you think about that while I just stay silent because nothing else has to be said. Like, that's, that is as low as it gets. That's a perceived authority figure as a counselor abusing his power to find drugs for himself. And he does that through asking one of his clients, which is so unethical and the, the absolute worst thing you could do as a counselor. But I did that while justifying it to myself that I wasn't that bad. Still, I wasn't that bad. You know, holy shit. From there, as you could already imagine and predict, it didn't take too long for me to lose that job. And it, a relapse starts well before the actual use. It starts well before because it's a mindset thing. But what had happened is after I started doing that with the one client, you start to, things start to fall apart around you because you have no standards at that moment. You, you, you're low as low gets. You're living in darkness. Everything becomes a lie that you cannot remember. You're, you're talking to your coworkers as if they're, they don't know you anymore. They're looking at you like you're crazy because you are crazy. And the whole time you're thinking that they don't know you're high. A lot of them are in recovery themselves, so they clearly know you're high. And I started to run low on funds again and it wasn't long before I, I pawned my work computer, my work laptop. And think about that. Like, think about that. I started showing up to meetings without my work laptop. Like, and then they would ask me about it, and I would be like, oh, it's at my house. Like, just these ridiculous lies. And one day I show up for work. I'm presented with a, with a meeting with the, the president of the, the board. And he sits me down and we just start talking about all, all my actions of the past, past few weeks since I got back from my injury. 
and at this point, they still only think that I had severe dehydration and all, all these things. And I'm walking around with a cane. To make things worse, I ended up having to leave that job. And, and it was a good thing for both parties because nothing good was going to happen. As a treatment center, you can't have somebody intoxicated claiming they're not intoxicated while counseling your customers or your clients. You cannot do that. That's unethical. That's against every everything you believe in as a treatment center, right? That was that. But I continued to use with that one uh, that client and things just continued to spiral downhill for about a month after that because I was just on a tear. It was shoot up, shoot up, shoot up. That's the only thing that I was thinking about. And then I had an intervention put on me by my family. I told them I would seek treatment and go to treatment. And so I went down to Florida for a 30-day inpatient treatment facility in Fort Lauderdale. And it was, a, it was a great little treatment facility. I didn't understand what I understand now because I was still young and naive and just didn't really care either. But I, I wasn't... I was down there for other people, right? Like I didn't want to get clean. I just got clean for, for my family during that time. I get into treatment and I just played the, played the game. And the first day I'm released from that treatment facility, I end up shooting up, not heroin, not opiates. I ended up shooting up crack with a few of the gals from that treatment center. Like, come on, I go down there as a heroin junkie and I end up shooting up crack. Like, who does that, right? That created another beast. And that was, I went on another tear for a few weeks and then checked myself into detox. And then I was left with a decision of to stay in Florida or to go back to Chicago and reevaluate. I ended up going back to Chicago to reevaluate. And then I was presented with another decision, which was, all right, I'm super close to the heroin dealers out here. I know I'll die if I stay. So the other option, which I, did, I drew up this whole plan in treatment in Florida of, I want to live in Colorado. I want to go snowboarding. Because my boy Mike, when he was still alive, the only thing to ever keep that dude away from drugs was snowboarding. That was the only thing that ever kept him away from drugs was snowboarding. He was super good at it. I know Chicago doesn't have snowboarding per se, but Wisconsin does. They have some pretty decent riding up in Wisconsin. When we were kids, we'd go up there all the time. And I knew that. I knew Colorado would, would provide snowboarding. I'd be able to just be in nature a little bit more. In treatment, I drew up this plan like to, to make it out to Colorado. And I remember being in Chicago thinking, well, I don't want to die. My hip was still all fucked up. I knew how the hospital was. Like, I didn't want to go through that again. So I knew I had to get out of that environment I needed to get out of there because it was life or death. So I moved to Breckenridge, Colorado. I want to tell you it was all gold and rainbows from there, but I had one, one incident that I relapsed pretty quickly in Colorado. But I checked myself into detox after the first use. But this detox facility was different in the fact that it was a Suboxone provider where Suboxone, for the ones that don't know, is a medical-assisted treatment. It is a medication that makes your body not have to go through withdrawals. Also, it 
creates a situation where even if you were to try and get high with opiates, doesn't allow the opiates to cross the blood-brain barrier, so you, you're unable to get high. And I didn't know a lot of stuff about Suboxone. I just knew you didn't have to go through withdrawals. As soon as I started taking that medication, I knew, like, oh, I could actually get my life back together with this medication. And that was great. That was a big blessing. The other thing about it was I was prescribed not only Suboxone, but I was also prescribed Clonopin, which is a benzodiazepine again, Adderall, which is a stimulant, and Cymbalta, which is an antidepressant. So you could imagine that I was nowhere close to being clean, but I was being told by these humans in white butcher coats how great I was doing and that as long as I wasn't shooting up drugs, I would be good to go. And every month I would have to drive from Breckenridge all the way down to Denver once a month to piss in a cup and sit with a human in a white butcher coat for four to seven minutes. They need to, to check to see if you're using heroin or not. So that justifies all this. Every 30 days you got to go do the same nonsense. And this went on for eight years. Eight years. And it was like I was sitting in a room while the whole world passed me by. And I'm not looking for any sympathy here. I'm, I'm not sharing any of this for sympathy or to be a victim or feel bad for me this, feel bad for me that. I was a zombie for so long, for so long. And I'm not saying, oh, it's all Suboxone's fault or any of that. No. Suboxone is a very glorious medication. It helped me tremendously. I was prescribed such a high dose, it was crazy. It's crazy looking back on it. Doctors view patients like myself as lifelong customers. Lifelong customers, the, the more they prescribe you, the longer you'll be in that system, the more money for them, the more money for insurance. You're sick, the more money, the more profits. Hospitals are designed like prisons for a reason. You don't get any natural light. They're in and out of your room every half hour. The food is atrocious. You're not getting the right nutrition. It's about keeping you sicker for longer. Staying sicker longer. Like that's, that's the whole thing. But the reason I'm sharing this is because I don't want you or your loved ones to go through what I did. If they're getting prescribed Suboxone, it's very important that they stay on that short term and short term only you know to get them over that hump of the withdrawal period and that's it the lowest dose possible being on such a high dose for so long you become a robot you become emotionless you become swollen almost like you're just this the shell of a human and i i wore 500 different masks for 500 different people i didn't process any emotion any feeling because I wasn't really able to. I was incapable of learning, incapable of remembering, but thinking I was a functioning member of society because I bought into the lies I was being sold by the humans in white butcher coats proclaiming to be healers. It's all starting to make sense, right? And so fast forward to uh, 2020, the onset of COVID. I had become like 300 pounds, 300 some pounds, I was so miserable that change seemed less painful 
than remaining stagnant. And I had gotten married a, a year before that. My wife was pregnant with our first. Like, so in that category, everything was, was, was fine. But deep down, I knew I needed to change, and this was the time. So I started the long process of weaning myself off, slowly but surely. I had tried many, many, many times before that, but I, I had not been successful because I had gone too fast or whatever the situation. It just didn't work out. But this time, I wrote a letter to my doctor explaining that everything that I thought of him and, and just... It was a letter that I knew I wouldn't be able to go back to the doctor because I wanted to give myself zero options. Because when you have options, you tend to utilize those options. So I didn't want any options, so I needed to cut the ties with any doctor. So it gave me zero options to ever go back and resupply, at least from a doctor. And I was done. I was, at the time, I was like 32 years old or something, and I didn't want to go around looking for drugs on the street. Like I was down and out and didn't have any motivation. I didn't have any wants to ever find drugs on the street again or any of that. I was just over it. The kid on the way, I was married. I just wanted to get off these meds. It was COVID. It was a great time for that. It sucked. It honestly sucked because you're facing discomfort. You're uncomfortable. But during that time, I developed a workout routine. I began sweating every day. And I began to see the progress of that. And the weight starting slowly to come off. And this gave me the belief that it was possible. And as the meds went down in dosages, feelings that I've never felt since 14 years old came back. Feelings of being alive again. Feelings of being myself, being a human, being able to connect with people. My personality came back. All these things started happening and it was kind of scary because nobody around me knew me like that, right? So that was what the scary part. But it gave me so much excitement because I began to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I began to see that light as tiny as it was. It gave me hope, real hope. And it made me see the person I, I can become and the person I will become. And that's all that I needed because I haven't gone back since. It's been many years, and my life is amazing today. From a physical perspective, I've dropped almost 100 pounds. I'm able to not only run again, but I'm playing sports again. I'm, I'm hooping all the time. I'm playing volleyball almost daily. So over... Almost 11 years ago, I was on my deathbed. I was told I wouldn't be able to run again. I, wasn't told, I was told I wouldn't be able to jump again. Definitely not play sports again. Here I am today. It's been a journey. It's been filled with pain, suffering, but a lot of it self-inflicted, no doubt. The thing that I want everybody to know who's listening to this is we're all born into this environment that we call the USA, right? We're all born into this. We don't have a choice, right? We don't have a choice. I've come to learn all these things about mind control, propaganda, subliminal messaging, brainwashing, programming. We've been 
fucked with to such a massive extent that we're all victims to a lot of a lot of the nonsense that is thrown down to us through TVs and screens and internet and all this shit. So give yourself a little bit of compassion. Give yourself a little bit of empathy because we didn't ask for any of this. We didn't ask to have people in charge that want to control us and enslave us. We didn't ask for this. And I'm not coming at this from a right or left or any of that perspective. I'm more just saying that's how I was able to forgive myself. It took me a long, long, long time to get to that, this point. I was able to finally, con- uh, finally forgive myself through the lens of, man, we're almost programmed from a young age to want to use drugs or, or just participate in that escapism. Also, when you're in school and you can't articulate something, but you feel it deep within your, your gut you suppress it and that when you suppress something like that it comes out in the form of drug use in the form of fighting in the form of talking back and I wasn't able to express the fact that we were being lied to actively in schools and that's what I felt deep down I just couldn't articulate it because I was so young you know you you can't articulate something like that and you had no time in the real world now that I'm 35 and I see it for what I see reality for what it is instead of what we're told to see or believe because of that that feeling in school that I had like all the shit we were taught is such nonsense all of it such nonsense it's to get you to obey and consume the more you obey the better the better for for, for the system the more you consume the better for the system and the more enslaved you are and not thinking you're enslaved, even better for, for the system. And now that I'm awake to, to all of it, I see, I'm able to see so clearly. I'm able to think with such clarity that I'm disappointed in myself at times because I, I pissed away a lot of my prime years, per se. But I've also gotten to a point where I'm grateful for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because I wouldn't be who I am today without all those losses, without all those wins, without all those embarrassing moments. I wouldn't be who I am today without the drugs. I wouldn't be who I am today without the chaos. I wouldn't be who I am today without the very few people that had a little bit of hope in me. I wouldn't be who I am today without the people who told me I would be dead who told me I would never amount to shit, who told me I can't do this or that, who pissed on all my dreams, who told me I wouldn't ever be able to dunk again, or whatever the thing is, I'm grateful for all of it.